Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible trauma-informed therapist and author, Dr. Amelia Kelly. Hello, Amelia, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. Today, we're going to be talking about recognizing emotional abuse. And for those that don't know, Dr. Amelia Kelly is a trauma-informed therapist, author, trainer, and coach whose PhD research looked into the effects of exercise on ADHD symptoms, as well as the effects of resiliency on PTSD. She is trained in hypnotherapy, EMDR, highly sensitive person therapy, and is also a meditation and yoga teacher. She is a presenter and writer in the science help field, focusing on relationships, trauma, healthy living, and adult ADHD. She is also a frequent presenter on women's issues and coping with the trauma of unhealthy relationship, as well as a coach and trainer for SAS's work-life program and a resident trainer for the NC Art Therapy Institute. She is here to talk about her new book, What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship. How are you today, Amelia? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing today? I'm excited and I'm doing fantastic. And I'm super excited that you're here on the show. And I have so many questions, particularly after reading your very long and impressive bio. You're doing so many (laughs) amazing and important things in the world. And I'd love to learn more about you because I found whenever I talk to therapists, they often have kind of a personal motive in their research and certification choices. You've researched adult ADHD, art therapy, and now have written a book on thriving after abusive relationships. So I'm curious, is there any bit of your own life experience in your choice on the things that you decided to go into? Well, pretty much always, right? <laughs> if if I'm focusing a couple of years on one dissertation, I have to have a little selfishness into it. So yes, my husband has adult ADHD, and I'm pretty sure that was a main driver in my decision on what to study. Also, I really focus a lot on kind of a holistic, natural approach to healing when at all possible. And so movement is a huge part of my life and it's very important to me for various reasons. And so taking something I cared about so much, which is exercise and pairing it with someone I cared about so much, I think was a big driving force in what I chose, at least for that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really fascinating. So your husband has ADHD and that really leads into a question I wanted to ask you around a common critique of psychotherapy that rather than helping sick people get better and become healthy, it actually helps healthy people adjust to a sick society. And this is something some critics say about ADHD, for example, that it's a result of taking naturally energetic, creative, exploratory youth and forcing them to sit in desks all day in our modern educational system. 
And I even recently watched a documentary about this rock climber who spent all their adult days out in nature, hiking, camping, backpacking. And of course, when they were a child and the youth, they had a really hard time like sitting in a desk all day, right? And the mom was like, they're just not made for this. They're just not made for the modern life of being in a cubicle, sitting in an office all day. They're meant to be outside and exploring the world. So I don't necessarily agree with this critique, but I just wanted to throw it out you just kind of a benchmark for your kind of take on this perspective. I think I saw that documentary, actually. It was really yeah. good. I'm sure. What was the name of it again? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It, it didn't so have good. a very uh, happy ending. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, no. but it was still very interesting. Yeah, it kind of has an into the wild vibe, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> by that movie. So I am loving your perspective, but I just like any other question about the human mind and brain, there's no black or white answer. So I think I could say yes and no. Yes, I truly believe that the way that our society is built for those who are going to be really successful in this high sensation, um, kind of highly metaphoric work environment. I mean, we have all these expectations that kids, because you were talking about kids, so I'll focus on them first, that you're going to sit, you're going to digest, you're going to regurgitate, you're going to learn, and you're going to do this in this way that doesn't engage the body enough. And we see that everywhere. And all at the while having these kids exposed to intense levels of stimulation. So there's some studies showing what happens when, for instance, a child, I think they use children in this study, when they were playing video games and a high level of activity is happening in the brain. But then when you put them in front of something like a book, there's a lower lower level of activity. So it would bring to point that if the child is used to being hyper-stimulated, it's going to be harder for them to attend to something like taking a test. I sometimes joke that, you know, ADHD, which really is just a neurodiversity, it's just a way of being attention different. It doesn't necessarily have to be a disorder. During the, um, what is it, the industrial revolution or during farming, I bet you people with ADHD were literally the most successful people. You know, but so then we have this environment and the situation now where you have to be sitting, you have to be stable, you have to, you can't be moving around to have some of those higher paying jobs or moving around in classrooms. So these kids get targeted as being high hyperactive. However, just like I was saying, there's two sides to the coin because it is a neurodiversity there are going to be environments that are not conducive to that neurodiversity, such as high stress environments, cultures or situations where maybe they're not receiving the right kind of diet, the right kind of movement. And for that reason, those genetic markers are going to switch on and you'll have instances of ADHD. You can also take a look at the increase in adult ADHD symptom presentation. And this is also coinciding with this increase in exposure to technology and being, you know, hyperstimulated everywhere. So yes, there's going to be a bit of a nature nurture happening. That's not to discredit. There are some extreme cases of ADHD where, you know, speaking of children, where parents are doing everything they can and still their kids are really struggling. So I get clients a lot who either ask, should I be medicated? Should I not? Or should I medicate my child or not? And it's a really individual answer. 
So it's really interesting. This is my first time hearing about it. You said there has been an increase in adult ADHD symptoms, and you're attributing some of it to nurture, some of it to our societal conditioning. Because I have heard that you know technology, our constant feeds, constant scrolling has has really kind of lowered our attention span. So tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Like, are people's attentions getting lower, and is it due to technological drives, or are there other things that are going on? Well, you can also look at stress involved in all of that as well. Um, for instance, as a therapist during the pandemic, I was offering a great deal of telehealth to the point where I was starting to notice it affecting my own attention. And I don't have ADHD. I am neurodiverse in a different way. I'm a highly sensitive person. So I do have a lot of empathy for ADHD. There's a lot of overlap. But I started to notice significant decrease in my ability to focus and sleep well and in agitation and irritability. And I recognized I needed to do something to move my body while I was doing all these telehealth sessions. Therein is introduced uh, Mrs. Treadmill that's now in my office. (laughs) (laughs) Some of my clients got used to watching me move like a metronome during our sessions just because I recognized that. But not everyone has that... uh, not everyone has studied how exercise affects his ADHD. So they're not going to think the first thing is, oh, maybe I need to move more because I'm stagnated by all this input all the time. So I'd love to hear more about how we can and how you might recommend people do bring more movement into their life. I also teach yoga and I love yoga. And Yay! often people mm-hmm. ask if like yoga is a modern invention, you know, because it's often presented as this ancient practice. But much of the physical practice is very new. And sometimes my reply is like, well, exercise is a modern invention. <laughs> like Back in the day when you, people were doing a lot more manual labor, they were getting a lot of their movement already in their lives. But exercise kind of grew out of this more sedentary lifestyle. So... We see some things on like, oh, go for a 30-minute walk three times a week, for example. But bringing in neurodiversity and how many people need different things, what are some movement practices and guidelines that you do recommend? I'm smiling so much that the viewers can't or the listeners can't see because so (laughs) many things you're saying are completely in line with what I've said or thought. And for that reason, I do mention when I'm trying to help a client or even just talking to someone I care about about exercise, we can't... I mean, you wouldn't expect to have any other living being, a dog, for instance, uh, we were talking about dogs earlier, not move every day, not exercise every day, not play every day. We as humans need the same thing. And so I try to work with my clients on not thinking of it as a prescriptive thing that they try to do two to three times a week, but that rather it's a daily habit like brushing your teeth. What we repeat becomes important and what is important becomes a habit. And so if it's something that we just kind of save for an extracurricular or something we call self-care, I think it's looked at the wrong way. But likewise, we don't need to go do high-intensity interval training every day or go to the gym for an hour and a half or go for a five-mile run. I encourage folks three minutes, even 10 minutes, 15, whatever you can do. A lot of people we talk about, you know, there's so many cool resources online that you could do. Find someone that speaks to you. I could plug a couple if you wanted to that I love. Or even looking at movement in your daily life differently, too. Like if you're feeling really stagnant, and you're not wanting to move, that is your body going into a shutdown mode. And so that's actually when you need the movement. 
So going outside and gardening, for instance, you know, bending down, getting into the soil, moving your body, that even itself is exercise. I love that. It's true. Like there are so many things that we can do to bring movement into our days, even just playing a song that you love and dancing to it for five minutes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> So, or play Bohemian Rhapsody and dance for 10. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you more about loving relationships with different people, including in the perhaps mental illness category or the neurodiverse category. And it might tie into your own personal life because I know your research has gone into ADHD and your husband has it. So I am curious how loving relationships are different and how loving somebody looks different if they do have some of these conditions. So I think the word love here is multifaceted because what we initially believe as love is that hormonal reaction and that need, that hunger for someone that initially may trigger us to say, I love you. And I'm speaking in a romantic sense right now. We can have love for so many different people. But after that, love can and should evolve into something that leads to a decision. So because of this love, I decide. Because of this love, I choose you. And that does mean that we choose multiple aspects of the person. So I think the biggest thing with with deeply loving someone with a mental illness or a neurodiversity such as ADHD is the decision and the choice. Now, how you get to treat yourself during and through these commitments is important as well, because you also have to be equally loving and committing to your own self-worth and your own wellness at the same time. I love that. I do love the to encourage people to recognize that love is a choice. And often when we choose to love somebody or we fall in love with somebody, it means loving all parts of them. And you know, I'm thinking about early on in the relationship and when you might want to disclose this information, you know, on the first day where you tell somebody about your clinical depression and, you know, see their response, or might we want to wait a little bit longer? And also tying this into the idea of what do we do when we receive this information? Because I'm thinking about, you know, parents who might have a child diagnosed with autism, and then they read every book they can about autism because they want to really learn how to best love and support their child. But in a loving partnership, like, how much do we want to put on the, say, other partner to learn about and, and work with their partner's mental illness versus this is their responsibility? That's a great question. So, and it's going to be different for everyone depending on how quickly you like to feel vulnerable in a relationship. So some people, it can take a little bit of time to feel comfortable exposing your inner workings uh, while other people, I, I can say for myself as a highly sensitive person, I tend to go deep if I feel comfortable, I can go deep pretty quickly with someone, um, letting them know, you know, some of the inner intricacies of my world. But that doesn't mean that it's anyone's responsibility to say, okay, here's my checklist of all of my faults. And let <laughs> me see if that works for you. <laughs> Sign the contract. You know, so it's not like you have to expose those things early on. However, I would encourage anyone entering a relationship to make sure that they understand their condition as much as they can, that they have learned as much as they can, and that 
they're seeking support in whatever way that looks for them. So maybe it's podcasts, books, talking to a friend. For some people, it's a therapist. Because when you bring it up to that potential love interest, it's going to be packaged in such a compassionate way because you're going to have compassion for your own condition and what you're working on. But you're also going to have compassion that you're you're offering, you're giving them something. You're saying, here's something to be careful with and gentle with. And I know that this is going to impact our dynamic. So the more you empower yourself to learn about whatever it may be, whether it be depression or ADHD or a host of other things, you're really going to be much more likely to have that healthy dynamic instead of the depression creating toxicity in the relationship. So I'd love to ask you a little bit more about being highly sensitive. Are you okay with that? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Because... You know, I'm connecting it to a few of the things that we mentioned earlier about psychotherapy's role in conforming us to a to society. And we do live in a very rational, logical, sort of cognitive-centric world where it can be easy to be like, oh, you're too sensitive or you're too emotional and emotions are bad and they need to be controlled and regulated and different things like that. So... I am curious, first of all, for like our listeners who are unfamiliar with this term, what is a highly sensitive person and how best can we support and love and bring into this world this different way of functioning and being in the world? So being a highly sensitive person means that you process the world around you and the emotions around you of yours and others much deeper. Now, this might just sound like what we would stereotypically think of as an empath. However, it is something you can actually medically scan for in someone's brain. It means that specifically their limbic system is more active and your limbic system is the part of the brain that detects safety. And so this affects depth of processing, overstimulation, empathy, and all the little intricacies you feel around you in the world. The very interesting thing about this is it only makes up 15 to 20% of our population, which is wild. And this is seen in animal studies. So this is across the board. They actually first discovered this in animals. It was not discovered in human animals (laughs) at that time first. Dr. Elaine Aaron is, I'd say, the spearhead in the movement. Um, And it has not been a new thing. This is almost three decades of research now on being highly sensitive. But you had said something about you know, you're oversensitive, you're, you know, you're just emotional. And I love that you're bringing that up because first of all, if someone is a highly sensitive person, it doesn't mean that they can't control their emotions. It just means that they feel them to such a greater degree than maybe some others around them. Highly sensitive people, and maybe I'm being biased as being one, They're the best. (laughs) They're the best. Um, They really do have these incredible superpowers. You know, a lot of HSPs, as you would hear it, you know, just for kind of a shortened lingo, are going to be the creators, the entrepreneurs, the artists, um, people who are breaking the mold, you know, people who are uncomfortable with the status quo. And so they're going to put themselves out there. And then they might need to go to bed after. (laughs) They might need a dark room after. I'm personally something called an HSSHSP, which means I'm a high sensation seeking, highly sensitive person. So that's just like really throwing it for a loop. I was explaining to my husband the other night, it's kind of like 
you're driving a car and you're never on cruise, you're either hitting the brakes or the gas. It's one or the other all the time. So while I might want to, you know, play rugby, jump out a window or jump out a plane, travel the world and throw parties for 50 of my friends, I also need to see no one all day and, you know, zen out in my bathtub before, (laughs) before seeing such said people, you know? So the thing is before learning about being an HSP, I have to admit, I always kind of thought I had like an anger issue because my fuse would get kind of short in certain situations. And now looking back, what I realized is I was an unaware, highly sensitive person. Whereas now I can really kind of insulate or prepare myself for situations, you know, and also knowing that not everyone else around me notices every little thing I notice. That's that can be very freeing for highly sensitive people. So you mentioned you were unaware. And I'm curious what you recommend for other people unaware to sort of, you know, other tests that they can do, for example, to become more aware that they themselves might be a highly sensitive person. Sure. So I stumbled upon this awesome documentary on the Gaia channel, but I think you can probably find it other avenues or rent it. It's called Sensitive, the Untold Story. It was produced by Dr. Aaron's um, team. It's funny because I was telling a client about it and I said, they featured Alanis Morissette who says she's an HSP. And my really young Xenial client said, who's that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no. Oh no. Age is showing. (laughs) But that was great. And also hsperson.com, which you can find all different highly sensitive uh, trained therapists on there as well. They have an assessment. It's a 26-item assessment that's been empirically supported and validated, and it's excellent. And I love the assessment because even just taking it as you go through, you start getting educated about what it means to be highly sensitive when you're reading things like easily impacted by hunger, oversensitive to caffeine, may stray away from scary movies. This might not be for everyone if you're high high sensation seeking as well, but that that website's great. Um, You can also go on my website. I have links to that through there as well. So there's lots of great information on the internet that's just kind of cropping up about this. And it's a huge passion of mine. Wonderful. Well, been really enlightening just hearing about these different ways of being in the world. So I really appreciate that. And we do have to shift to our topic for today, which is on recognizing emotional abuse, which has nothing to do with any of the things you mentioned. It's not like highly <laughs> know, sensitive or ADHD as any, you know, people have any any more likely to to be abusers. But before we get into this challenging subject, I'd love to talk about the light at the end of the tunnel and just talk about how beautiful loving relationships are and we can i think we can simultaneously acknowledge that emotional abuse is something that happens in loving well not loving relationships but love relationships that supposedly are loving but do you th- still think we can recognize that and still put our trust in love still see loving relationships proper ones as sources of healing and growth I would say so, especially because as we learn ourselves more, we start to recognize what it is we want and deserve. And if you champion for what you want, especially I talk with clients a lot about this idea of non-negotiables, you're allowed to be playful and excited and come up with even say a list of the desires that you have. 
And then to really identify the non-negotiables. And I think when you give yourself the love first and you recognize what it is you need, then you're going to be much more likely to give and receive it more freely. But if you're trying to confine yourself into a box of what you think someone expects, it's hard to even give and receive love in a relationship like that because who are they loving? So I'm curious about the type of people that are prone to basically abusing others because we do have a saying in restorative justice that hurt people hurt people, that those who hurt others tend to have a past of being hurt themselves. So I'm curious, when you look at people who do tend to fall into these relationships, were they often abused in the past? Statistically speaking, not always. Honestly, um, there are going to be traits that make someone slightly more susceptible. I know there's studies out looking at personality traits like agreeability and being actually highly sensitive, um, being overly conscientious of your emotions. So if you are someone who doesn't stick up for yourself very quickly early on because of the fact that you go with the flow, you may be more appealing to one of these individuals. Um, I often tell the story of when I first met my husband that I think it was a week maybe or two into us dating. I said, okay, let's talk. I just want to let you know, I'm going to Africa this summer. That's already in stone. And if I want to go out with my girlfriends, I don't really want to be held back. So if either of those things don't work for you, let me know. It's okay. And honestly, I think that that just set the stage. Like, you know, I wasn't pushy about it or a bully, but I just kind of put it out there and said, this is who I am. I think if someone doesn't champion this is who I am very early on, it can make them... I'm saying more appealing to the abuser than susceptible. And this is my reason. I want to place the responsibility on the abusers. I don't want to place the responsibility on the ones that they target. I don't think that's fair. And I actually think that that script needs to be changed. We no longer should be asking, why did you stay? We should be asking, what did they do to make you stay? I agree. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked a lot about the podcast about how important it is to be clear about what we want. But again, we can not victim blame, of course, in any way, shape or form. And let's get into the book itself. So What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship. And this is a new book. And for those unfamiliar, is this a memoir? Is it a workbook? Is it a psychological self-assessment? What are we looking at here? It's everything. (laughs) It really really is, though. Uh, So the book came out of a podcast, actually. I was on my co-author, Kendall Ann Combs' podcast, High Heels and Heartache. And we had finished an episode and this was pre-COVID. So we were actually physically in the room together. It was kind of crazy. And I'm leaving and I just turned and looked at her and said, you just, you learned so many cool things on this podcast. Have you ever thought of writing a book? And it was one of those kind of aha moments where we both thought, yeah, that, that would be great. What I thought was going to be this exploration of all this that she was learning, it actually became this incredibly vulnerable true account of what she experienced as a survivor. So readers are going to get... And it's really neat. My Speaking of ADHD, my husband, who, as I mentioned, has ADHD, read the book after. I did not want him to read it while I was writing it. (laughs) And he said, this 
book is great for my ADD because it's like if I get kind of, you know, too into one part or I'm losing interest in one part, suddenly there's a totally different book happening all in the same chapter. So basically she's sharing her experience in every single chapter. I'm sharing insights, red flags, research, kind of the the what if she had known moments. And then she f- reflects on what she learned and we give the readers an opportunity to do that. So we've got workbooking, we've got the self-help and we've got the memoir kind of all together. Um, and I will put this out there. I really want to encourage clinicians to take a look at this book because it's not only invaluable to share with their clients, but I wish I, this is funny, I'm saying I wish I knew. I wish I had known what it was like to be in a really honest place with a survivor the way that I got to with her. It was almost unmatched to anything I even experienced clinically. And I think it's a really great kind of eye-opener into how to help individuals who have experienced this. So you didn't turn your husband into one of your early proofreaders? <laughs> no, he's he's the slowest reader of all time. So it would have driven me crazy. No, I had other clinicians and actually dear friends of mine who had experienced intimate partner violence. We had people who had been there. Uh, so no. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book, What I Wish I Knew, you write that most toxic relationships do not start out that way and often begin in a more positive light. So I read that and I was like, okay, wow. So there's a few th- few things we need to unpack about this. One is how might we recognize the red flags earlier on, right? Because it almost seems like people get trapped, right? Things right. start out really happy. But then is the toxicity inevitable, right? Or are there things that without victim blaming, but perhaps both partners are doing that put it in a more of a negative spiral? And I'm glad you're asking this too, because it kind of loops us back to what makes someone more susceptible. And I and I do want to preface that if someone has experienced adverse childhood experiences or has witnessed abuse or unhealthy relationships, it does potentially set the stage for them not having those red flags be as noticeable because they're more normalized to stress and they're more normalized to those unhealthy relationships. So just kind of wanted to add that to the to the other piece of what we were saying earlier. But with that being said, both that comment about susceptibility because of past abuse or past trauma and this, what do we do? How do you detect it? What we're doing right now, first of all, is the very first thing to do. And that's educate. That's talk about this. You know, Domestic violence and intimate partner violence are scary topics and they have not been in the common conversation enough. They are topics that often survivors feel shame and they don't want to share and they don't want to reach out and be transparent about. So my hope is that, you know, it's kind of this evolution we've got a couple years ago, Tamara Burke's Me Too was resurfaced by Alyssa Milano and then, you know, taken on to the world stage, thankfully. I think out of Me Too, we've got this evolution of, well, it's not just physical and sexual, it's emotional too. You know, there's not even, there's even some laws out there that don't honor 
the power of control and abuse and emotional abuse that can happen. Don't even allow those things to be convictable, which is shameful. And so there needs to be a cultural change. And the reason I'm saying this, I believe with the cultural change, it will be something that people learn more about early on. I think these conversations need to start as early as sex education with young children. Topics like consent. I don't know about you. Those were never taught to me <laughs> during sex ed. <laughs> what you sex know, ed? No, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it really needs to be part of an early conversation. So yes, if we're more educated about things like love bombing and gaslighting and all the other things that can happen early, early on in an abusive relationship, hopefully those red flags are more noticeable. And the reason I had mentioned in the book very specifically that most of these relationships don't start as violent or negative is because why would anyone stay? There has to be a carrot at the end of the stick. There has to be something that makes someone want to stay. And an abusive person or a narcissist or all the other different personality uh, issues that can happen in these relationships, those individuals know that. And so they're going to utilize love bombing in a dangerous fashion, not in the positive, I'm going to write you a love letter and express myself to you and give you a CD of love songs, kind of beautiful love bombing, but more so the, I'm going to love bomb you in a way where you don't know which way is up and which way is down. You don't know how you're going to live without me because I'm your everything. That's the dangerous type of love bombing that looks so positive in the beginning and then can become dangerous. Yeah. So I'd love to get more into what that emotional abuse looks like, because I think a lot of people are more familiar with physical abuse. It's a lot more visible and obvious when it happens. It's something you could potentially see. You mentioned love bombing as one form. And what are some other types of emotional abuse that you see in relationships? So anytime that power of control is being used in different fashions, those things are going to be emotional because they're not going... And I'll give you examples for sure. Because they're not going to be something that creates physical bruising or physical harm at first. And that's the thing, that emotional abuse can be physically harmful, but it takes time. It compounds and it's more chronic. So emotional abuse, let's start with verbal, for instance. You know, we can very clearly imagine if someone's name calling or berating that that's a form of emotional abuse. But did you know silent treatment is a form of emotional abuse? Stonewalling and not uh, Gottman's term of stonewalling. You know, shutting the person out just for the sake of making them question themselves and feel isolated and feel bad. That's emotional abuse. Another form of emotional abuse, other than just verbal abuse, is actually something like financial abuse. Someone may not initially think that, but think about how vulnerable and how scary it can feel to feel like if I'm not with this abuser, I can't survive. I can't pay my bills. I can't eat. I can't get my children's needs met. So that's emotionally abusive when you try to put someone in a situation where they can't fend for themselves. Another form is isolation because, again, and this can start in the love bombing phase when it's, I'm your everything, you don't need anyone else. And some of the gaslighting, they don't believe in our relationship. They don't believe in me. You just need to believe in me. That can really start this isolation, which just sets the stage for further abuse. And isolation can make someone more susceptible to gaslighting because when that person is your everything and they're questioning your sanity, then are you sane? 
So this emotional abuse is a very broad term and that's why it really needs to be as important, if not, I don't want to say more so important than physical abuse, but the research shows that when someone experiences emotional versus physical abuse, the same parts of the brain fire, which is wild. So the brain is reading it the same way, meaning that PTSD and post-trauma responses can show up very similarly for someone who's been only physically or only um, emotionally abused. So how do we best and more easily and quickly and readily recognize that this is happening in our relationships? And what do you think it takes to build, say, the courage to leave and to recognize that things aren't going to necessarily improve? One of the easiest resources that I love to share, we have it in our book, is The Power of Control Wheel created by Duluth. And it shows how you can see this show up in a lot of areas, like I was mentioning, financial, power of isolation, so forth. But with that being said, the first thing that I ask someone is, do you feel like yourself? If you feel like you're questioning who you are, and this is not just natural improvement that happens when you get into a healthy relationship. We do want to expand and learn and be better. And, you know, how many times have you heard that term on a rom-com? You make me want to be a better person, you know, (laughs) but like, (laughs) but that is, that is a sign of a healthy relationship. But if you're feeling like you need to change who you are in order to appease the other person, that is a very good sign that things are going in the wrong direction. If you notice that you're starting to lose touch with people, places, and things that you used to care about, that's a very good sign that you're in a dangerous situation. If the person is trying to utilize you to lift themselves up, but not helping you rise up and be the best version of you, that is a sign that you are in an abusive relationship. And these are not even, as I mentioned, the physical signs. Well, I'll ask you about those physical signs in just a moment, but I want to repeat what you said because I think it's really important. So you said, and it was really beautiful, if you're feeling like you need to change who you are in order to appease the other person, that's a good sign that things are going in the wrong direction. And you also added, if you're losing touch with the people and things that you care about, that's also an important sign. Absolutely. It feels so real. Yeah. So... I do think it's really fascinating that in the brain, you know, emotional pain and physical pain are deeply connected, sometimes, you know, inseparable. And even something like emotional abuse can show up physically, can show up in, in sickness. And so what are some of those other physical signs that a person might see and experience? So chronic pain is definitely one of the ones I notice most often in the research supports Autoimmune diseases can be very commonly connected to chronic ongoing emotional trauma. I actually have a client who is just a wonderful human being. And for years, she's been deflected to express herself to her narcissistic partner. And lo and behold, she got diagnosed with thyroid disease. Now, this is the interesting part. You know, it's, I think it's very hard for most people to really, really believe that emotional pain can cause medical trauma, which it's been supported time and time again, because it's so hard to conceptualize. This is the wild thing. When she started speaking up for herself and focused on her own physical health, 
suddenly she was able to drop her medication. And that is very uncommon with autoimmune disorders. So I'm not saying that it's going to instantly be the fix, but it is something to look out for as not being the cause. Other things that are more connected to kind of what we would classically expect as PTSD responses, irritability, issues with sleeping, irritable bowel syndrome, lots of things connected to our gut. You know, the majority of the serotonin created in our body is created in the lining of our gut. And so if we are constantly under stress, that lining becomes imbalanced and that can affect things like your mood. So you think of things like depression and anxiety, you're on medications to help with serotonin production. And then yet you're in this incredibly toxic relationship and your gut is completely unhappy all the time. So that's that gut brain um, connection is huge when it comes to enduring abuse chronically. So I, I challenge someone who's going through something like this or who knows or is caring for someone, where in the body is that manifesting? And is there something about that space in your body that is stuck? You know, we could have a whole episode about chakra work because that's kind of what I'm getting into a little bit here, but there's definite science behind it too. That's incredible. And you mentioned the type of work that you might do in order to solve some of these issues and work through some of these issues. And I am curious what the almost protocol is for a therapist who is either working with a couple and it becomes clear that there is some sort of emotional abuse going on or you're working with an individual. And I almost feel like working with the individual would be more common because I feel like A, the abuser wouldn't necessarily go to couples therapy. But I almost feel like a form of emotional abuse is being like, you're crazy, you have mental problems, you need to go see a therapist. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's, that is, you just gave one of the most common examples of gaslighting I see in my practice. I had a couple that I worked with for years and the, the husband was emotionally abusive. And at one point, it came to a head where he was forcing her to go get an additional psych eval so that he could try to pin her for all of the issues. It just, it just continued to escalate. So you brought up the difference between individual versus couples. And I think the example I was just giving is part of why doing this kind of couples work can be very tricky. And even some of the most seasoned therapists can be duped by a narcissist in the, in the way that they can redirect blame. So it's very important as therapists or healers to be very aware of what, you know, some of these charming traits may be that they may see in their office. I, I will say that when I recognized with that particular couple that the abuse was starting to become present in session, I let them know that I was no longer going to be able to offer couples counseling because the counseling was becoming part of the abuse. Now I do work with just the wife and I don't want to share too, too much more about that, but you know, it's, it can happen where you realize that this is a dynamic that I could not and should not support. There can be some really uncomfortable situations if you recognize physical abuse in sessions and you have to always be triaging. So that's the, to answer the question about what do you do first? What's the protocol? you have to triage for safety, first and foremost. And if safety is not established, you can't have that ongoing uh, clinical support happening. Not that you're going to leave the, the client, but you have to address that first. 
Now, let's say I'm working with a client who's in an abusive relationship and we triage for that immediate safety first. The next step would be, am I helping you stay or am I helping you leave? You know, I need to let them choose. I cannot dictate what they do. If I try to push them too much, they're going to feel judged and there's not going to be that safe space for them in my office. And so it's my responsibility to ask them that as long as they're safe in that immediate moment. You know, I don't, I I, wouldn't need to break confidentiality for that. Now, let's say they say, I want you to help me stay. I'm not ready to leave yet. This is really tough, but we're going to walk through it and we're going to keep going. And so what happens at that moment is that I'll just work on empowerment. You know, well, you know what? Kind of like that one that I had mentioned. We just worked on, well, let's focus on your health issues. Let's focus on your wellness. You know, we're not going to focus on dissolving the marriage. Let's focus on your wellness instead. So that's when someone's in it. When someone's leaving it, I would give them my book, (laughs) first of all. Um, But, you know, the, the information that we share in there, it's reaching out to other people, trying to establish a new support network. It's really important to not feel isolated during that time. So fortunately, we're about winding down. And I'd love to end with a little bit of light, a little bit of love. <laughs> After all the heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it is really heavy and I really appreciate you coming on. And it, you're so right. It's such an important dialogue that needs to happen more and more and to help people get out of these relationships. So when we do talk about the light at the end of the tunnel and what that looks like, because we already mentioned the physical ailments, physical sicknesses someone might even be experiencing, and not to mention the the self-doubt and the shame that one experiences after these relationships. So after such an experience, is there healing? Is there hope? And how can a person become self-empowered again after such a relationship? That's the beautiful thing about being human. There's always an opportunity to heal. And in that, I hope there's hope. And the thing of it is, is that it's a journey just like every other adversity. So I encourage listeners who may have gone through something like this, don't expect that light switch. You know, I'm, I'm being abused now. I'm okay. You know, it's, it's a constant conversation of learning and patience and compassion, having a great deal of compassion for yourself and not expecting to feel as if nothing happened, you know, something did happen. And when you can take what you experienced and integrate it into the meaning of what you can offer to the world and who you are and these new found bits of knowledge and insight that you have, it becomes woven into this strength. And when you have that strength, you may go and try to, you know, for instance, my co-author had started a podcast or some people write about it or some people just support a friend or, you know, let someone know, Hey, I see a red flag that I wish I had seen, you know, being able to take our traumas and make them part of our meaning is called integration. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that can come out of pain. And that's not always going to be the thing that happens the first day. I think the, the first thing is being able to just feel safe with one other person. Working on feeling safe with any sort of community is the most important first step, especially because a lot of uh, survivors have been isolated. And a big part of recovery is 
this mirror neuron experience of I smile, you smile, I'm smiling at you, I'm letting you know you're a wonderful person. You feel that it generates all the way deep down into your core. But if you're completely isolated and you're alone, you don't get to have that experience. So it can feel overwhelming to think of, you know, for instance, for some people going to a support group or joining these big things can feel like a lot in the beginning. So you could also look for things that just feel joyful and fun and lighthearted to you and go do that first, you know? So going to a yoga class and being in the back of the room or even just going to a movie where there's other people present, you know, and laughing together with other people. It's, it sounds small, but these little efforts. And obviously, if you have friends and family that are there to support you, remember this. Even if you were isolated from them, that doesn't mean that they don't want to hear from you. They want to hear from you and they want to support you. Don't let the person who abused you gaslight you into thinking that there's no one there. I'm hopeful that everyone has just that one person there, at least. And then finally, I mean, you can reach out to a trauma-informed therapist or someone who's really empathetic, who can be a completely separate third party. And you know you won't be judged by them at all. And then maybe start there, practice with them, and hopefully expand that outside the room. I love your emphasis on starting small. And also that recovery happens with others. You mentioned it's important to begin by feeling safe with one person. And then we can, of course, shift to greater circles of friends, family, and community. Because I do think that loving relationships, again, are so key in our growth and healing. So thank you so much, Dr. Amelia Kelly, for coming on to the show. And I do have to finish by asking the question I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? What do I wish everyone knew about love? I know that you absolutely deserve it, that you are worthy of it because you exist. And that's it. Yes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So thank you for this really important conversation and also challenging. And so we encourage any listeners who have experienced some of the things we discussed in the show to really seek help in order to get out of whatever relationship is causing you pain and suffering. And you can reach out to Dr. Mila Kelly directly. So for our listeners who want to do that, how can they find you? They can reach out to me on my website, ameliakelly.com. And as I was joking with you before we started, Kelly is with an EY. <laughs> <laughs> and on there, you can find links to my Instagram. I'm at Dr. Amelia Kelly on Instagram and on Twitter, Dr. Kelly Amelia, because my name was taken. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I really do try to... I, I just had someone reach out to me from California asking about finding a therapist. I don't know anyone in the area, so I tried to help her do a little search. Like I will try my best. If you reach out, you have questions. I also do a Q&A session where anytime you send me something that might help others... I'm going to record and share my answer with everyone who follows me. So you all get to benefit from the questions. So feel free to reach out with questions. I just love to share, as you can tell from our chat. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all your valuable insights and wisdom. I encourage our listeners to check you out and also check out your new book, What I Wish I Knew, Surviving and Thriving After an Abusive Relationship. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Dr. Kelly. 
Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 